Um, and that means that Polly and I uh, and, and Ellery have officially now started the birthday party circuit. Now, kids' birthday parties are awesome. I love them. Um, they're wonderful. Ellery loves her birthday cake. She loves singing happy birthday to people. It's fun for us to get to watch her just in, enjoy that time with her friends and get so excited. It's done wonders for our social life. Truly. Um, so there's, there's all, all great things about kids' birthday parties, except for one thing, and that's the party favor. Um, so if you know me, you know, the, the two things I hate most in life are presents and waste. And the party favor seems to be an attempt to combine both of those things into one, into one little package. Um, because now not only am I not able to teach my child that it's more blessed to give than to receive because she goes to people's birthday parties asking what she gets to unwrap and bring home now, but, but you're also forcing me into the position now where I've got to decide whether to just go ahead and throw away that 10 cent finger puppet when we get home, just go ahead and throw it in the garbage now, or do I, and, and violate my personal biggest pet peeve about wasting things, or do I invite it into my home uh, knowing full well that it's never going to get touched again except for every single playtime when we have to dump all the toys out on the carpet, right, parents, and, and then, you know, she doesn't bother with it until we got to pick it up every day for the rest of our lives. So let's all just agree uh, for any parents that we're not going to do party favors anymore. Uh, but, but all that to say, this morning... This morning, I think that as our six-month-long party that we've been having together in the book of First Peter draws to a close, I think there can be a temptation sometimes to treat the last sort of verses in a New Testament epistle, a letter, as just that, just a cheap party favor. And we, we kind of sometimes think, oh, they're, they're all really the same. Peter's going to, he's going to throw in some last-minute reminders about stuff he's already discussed anyways. He's going to send out some, some shout-outs to some obscure first-century Christians. He's going to tack on your standard Christianese blessing about all glory and honor and power and praise and might, might and blessing and, you know, love and joy and peace and patience. Kind of, be yours forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and in Christ, amen. He's going, to, he's going to tack that on. But before we just kind of rush through the end of 1 Peter and rush into Easter and into Second Peter, what we're going to get into after Easter. I want to just slow us down for uh, a moment this morning to receive the gift that I think Peter has for us here in these final verses. And I, I think personally that in a lot of ways he saves the best for last. That far from being a cheap party favor, the kind of parting gift you used to see on those old game shows, don't worry, you're not going home empty-handed. Here's a year's supply of Pepto-Bismol or whatever they used to give out. No, Peter's parting gift to us here is more like the gift that the winner was playing for, the brand new Corvette. Right? Because his, his parting gift for us this morning is actually eight separate gifts. And so we're going to look at each. And uh, that's right, this is going to be an eight-point sermon if you look at your bulletins. But you can blame Peter, not me. He's just too generous. And so I've got eight gifts that we're going to consider. So if you would stand with me as you're able, um, we'll read, read this passage together. I'll, I'll read it out loud if you want to follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would come and make much of Jesus in this place. Make little of me and my words, make much of your word. Father, that we would be able to receive the gift that you have for us in your word this morning. We'll give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so jump right in. Parting gift number one is the gift of conviction. Peter offers us the gift of humility. He explains that it's a gift because it's only through a God-given conviction about our sin that leads to repentance and ultimately humility that God will, at the proper time, exalt you. Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. His is an upside-down kingdom where the way to the top is going down. Jesus now sits on a throne that is above all other thrones because he died the death that was below all other deaths. So Peter says, you want to be exalted with him, like him, then be humbled. Humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God. Now that's an interesting phrase. Mighty hand of God, it occurs 27 times in the Bible, but only this once in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, the phrase alternatively was used to refer to both God's discipline and judgment, as well as his protection and care. And so we see in Psalm 32, David saying, for day and night your mighty hand was heavy on me. It's judgment and, and discipline. And then in Psalm 89, the psalmist says, you have a mighty arm, strong as your hand. Our shield belongs to the Lord. And so we see that same mighty hand of God both putting us in our place when we start thinking too much of ourselves and lifting us up when we're broken and we're downcast. God is always, he has this way of keeping us right where we need to be, right? Not too high, not too low. It's like Goldilocks, somewhere in the middle. It's just right. And so verse seven then is the counterbalance to verse six. Sometimes we get too proud and we need conviction and humility, and other times we're so low that we need to be reassured that we're never beyond God's care that he sees our trouble, that he hears our cries, he feels our pain, and most importantly, God shoulders our burdens. Gift two from Peter is a reminder that we serve a God who cares, who not only knows all our anxieties before we even cast them on him, but who cares. So friends, you need to know this morning that your heavenly father cares. He cares. He hasn't forgotten about you. He sees your tears he hears your cries, he feels your heartache, and his arms are always open to you. And so this morning, 
what I thought we would do um, is something a little different. If, if you pay attention on Facebook, uh, you might have noticed, uh, like I have in our, in our closed group posts for the church, that it just kind of seems like this is, for whatever reason, a heavy uh, time in, in the lives of a lot of our families and our church family here. Um, in fact, I see that we've, we've got a, a lot of folks missing because um, they're at funerals or visiting family or um, a lot are on spring break too. But it's just, it seems like a difficult season. So rather than just preach about how we ought to cast our anxieties on the Lord, I thought that um, maybe we could just do it together. And we've done this in different ways here at West Hills um, over the years. But what I'm envisioning this morning is, is more similar to what some churches call the prayers of the people if you're familiar with that. And so what I want to do is I just want to list off a few categories of types of prayer requests. And if the Lord brings someone to mind for you who you know is, is suffering with that right now, whether they're at West Hills or otherwise, just somebody who you'd like collectively for us to lift up in prayer this morning, um, would you just say their name out loud? And, and once someone is named, let's just allow 10 or 15 seconds to all collectively surround that person, lift that person up in prayer. Whether you know them or not, just pray for that, that person, that name, whether you know what's going on or not. And, and after a moment then, 10 or 15 seconds, somebody else can name someone else aloud and lift them up. We'll pray for them and then someone else. And after a minute or two, when it seems like we've kind of exhausted that category, then I'll move us on to the next one. And I've, I've warned the AV guys, and so the camera's going to be off. We're not going to put this on the internet, so you don't have to worry about that. If you want to pray for somebody who you're not sure if they'd be comfortable with it being public, first of all, again, we don't need the specific nature of the request, just the name. Um, but if, if you're not sure if they're comfortable even with just being named, uh, then just pray for them privately instead. Um, but for those who are humble enough to say, I need your prayers right now, I need your prayers, then let's, let's turn our thoughts and our prayers to them this morning as we intercede, intercessory prayer on their behalf and collectively cast our anxieties on the Lord, okay? Let's pray. Still got six gifts to go. Gift number three, Peter gives us this will be our longest one. The others are much shorter. Gift number three, Peter gives us a counter to our enemy. Peter spends the most time on this one, actually. It's, it's kind of interesting. A counter to our enemy, the adversary. He warns us that Satan is just waiting for an opportunity to attack, but then Peter lays out a game plan for how we were going to counter that attack. First, five subpoints here. First, we need to ready ourselves, verse 8. Be watchful, be sober-minded, he says. It's the same Greek word, nephate, from chapter 1, verse 13, that we looked at a few weeks ago. Sober up. Peter instructed us there that we are to sober up, to gird up the loins of our minds, to roll up our tunics so we can run hard after Jesus. And we pointed out that drunk people make for bad runners. And similarly here, Peter makes the point that drunk people make for bad watchmen. If you've heard reports of a lion in the area devouring people and you're on night duty, don't have one too many around the campfire, right? Because you need to be on full alert. And that's our situation, Peter says. That's, that's it. There is a real enemy, a lion. No, not a physical enemy, but he's no less real. And actually, I think Peter would say the fact that our fight isn't against flesh and blood, but is against spiritual forces of evil 
makes our enemy even more dangerous. In a lot of ways, it would be easier if Satan was a literal lion, even a literal dragon for those of you in the Revelation Bible class, because at least then you could see him coming, right? And if this seems a little out there for, for some of us and you get uncomfortable and we start talking about Satan and I don't really do all that spiritual realm stuff, with all due respect, you're gonna have, you're gonna have problem with Christianity. Christianity is gonna be tough for you because we, we subscribe to a supernatural faith because we, we serve a supernatural God, literally a God who's literally beyond nature and the physical realm. The Bible says our God is spirit, right? But he's no less real. And our enemy is spirit too. He's also no less real. Now, he's different. He's not omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient like God is. Satan is finite, but he still exists outside the physical realm, which also means that Satan's concern is not primarily with the physical realm either, like God's. All, All that stuff that we prayed about a moment ago, cancer, poverty, death, physical suffering, Satan loves that. But for him, it is always a means to an end. He enjoyed afflicting Job in the Old Testament, killing his family, cursing him with boils all over his his body. But why did he do it all in the first place? Do you remember? It's to get him to curse God, right? That's that's always his ulterior motive is the spiritual. And so that takes us to point number two here. Sub point number two, we must recognize our enemy. If you're going into battle, and Peter says, make no mistake, that's what this is. This is not a scuffle. It's not a disagreement. The Bible says this is a war. Then you better know your enemy. And just look at how Satan is described here. It says, prowling like a roaring lion. There are three things that stand out to me about that. Number one, he's no longer a snake. You look in the Old Testament, Genesis 3, that's how he got to Eve, right? Snakes are crafty. Subtle half-truths. And yet, he's no longer a snake here. There's no subtlety about a roaring lion, a 500-pound lion, right? There's a reason why our God, why Yahweh, is depicted as a lion more than any other animal in Scripture. Because he's the king of the jungle, right? Aslan. But notice how Satan poses here as a cheap imitation of the Lion of Judah. That's kind of been Satan's MO from the start. That's kind of been his whole sin deal is that he just wants to be God. But he's not. He's not. But he's still a lion. Ellery's gotten into the Lion King here recently. We pulled out the old school VHS cassette. He, he might not be Mufasa, but he's still Scar. Right? Or Simba. I guess Mufasa gets killed. It's not a perfect analogy, right? He's not, he's not Simba, but he's still Scar. He's still, he's a scary lion, so we've got to be on guard. Point number two, secondly, he's prowling. Satan doesn't wait for us to come to him. He's on the hunt, right? He is pursuing us. Now, this is important. Christians are not immune to Satan's attacks. On the contrary, we are his primary targets, you say, wait a minute, we studied First, First John last year, and I remember John said, everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Well, that's true. But God also prophecies in the book of Revelation 2.10, he says, the devil will throw some of you into prison that you may be tested in the last days. 
Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so Satan's got to touch us in order to throw us in prison and kill us, right? And so which one is it? Can he touch us? Can he not touch us? Well, there are three words in Greek for, for touch, and, and I, the, the word that Peter uses here, uh, sorry, that John uses there, haptomai, literally means to cling to, means to fasten or adhere to. And so I think the point here is that Satan can absolutely touch us. He can afflict us physically. He can, he can touch us, just like he got permission from God to touch Job in the Old Testament, right? And, and we hear that he went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. But Satan can't cling to us. He can't cling to God's elect. He, he can't affix himself to us. He, can't he can touch our bodies, but to really grab hold of us, he would have to be able to touch us in the, the deepest, truest part of ourselves and our, and our souls. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that he can't do that. If we are in Christ, then God has already got a hold of our souls. That is a war that's already been fought and won. Amen? So he can't touch us there. But yet, daily battles rage on. Battles. And while we have eternal victory in Christ, we can still lose ground to the enemy in the here and the now. And so we must stay alert. Because not only is he prowling, but he's seeking someone to devour, number three. Have you, seen, have you guys seen that TV show, uh, Fatal Attractions on Animal Planet? Not the m movie from the 80s with Glenn Close and Michael Douglas, but the, the TV show about the people who have fatal attractions to their exotic pets. Um, well, there's an episode about a guy who raises pet lions, and he lets them roam around his house, play with his kids, just like they're his house cats, right? Do you want to know how the episode ends? You want to guess? I mean, you laugh, but <laughs> this, this is the point. Satan is not a cuddly kitty cat, right? He doesn't want to play with you. He wants to rip you to shreds, devour you completely, Peter says. That's why 1 John 5 said, Christians don't go on sinning, because if we still think that sin is just a game, that no one's really getting hurt or all the other ways that we justify our sin, then we don't get it at all. We need to spend some extra time this holy week at the foot of the cross, reflecting on the meaning of his sacrifice, looking up into the face of Jesus as he bleeds out naked and ashamed, gasping for breath. That, that is how serious our sin is. And all Satan needs is an inch, just a foot in the door, and he will take it and run with it and seek to bring us down. And so Paul says, don't give him a foothold. Ephesians 4, don't give him a foothold, not an inch. And so how do we do that? How do we make sure we don't give him a foothold? Well, we resist him. Number three, we resist him. Verse 9, how? By being firm in your faith, Peter says. Don't wait until you're really tested, until Satan puts you through the ringer to invest your time and your energy in your faith. If you wait until you can see the enemy army marching against you, until they're upon you to start reinforcing your city walls, it's too late. We've got to make every effort to ensure that our faith is firmed up before the battle really heats up. So what's true in March Madness is true in spiritual warfare. The best defense is a strong offense. 
Got to keep the ball in their court, right? And there will come a day when you and I, we will desperately need to have our closets stocked up with the full armor of God, with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We will need these things because we all get tested in this life. If it hasn't come for you yet that day, it will. Peter says, don't wait to go shopping for the armor. Go get it in your closet right now. This is precisely what Peter has spent his whole letter devoted to, is building up our faith, our knowledge of the truth, our understanding of the gospel, our passion for righteousness, our confidence in the scriptures, so that the Lord might find us ready in any season, firm in our faith for the trials that are sure to come our way. And number four, fourth way that we counter Satan is by remembering that we're not alone. In verse 9, Peter says, remember that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. Brene Brown uh, says that the two most powerful words in the English language are me too. Me too. That is, that's empathy. That's not just sympathy. I pray, we prayed about it a, a moment ago with Jesus, but do we know the difference this is an important distinction. I found a really great video clip that I couldn't help but share with you guys um, that, that lays out the difference between empathy and sympathy. This is important, so if you'll uh, watch. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because, in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. That's the difference. Sympathy is feeling for someone. Man, that stinks. I feel for you. Empathy is feeling with someone. Me too. Me too. Peter says, not only do we have a high priest in Jesus who is able to empathize with our weakness, Hebrews 4.15, but we have a whole community of brothers and sisters who are sharing the same struggles as we are. 
Did you notice that during the prayers of the people that we, that we did just a moment ago, there wasn't a single category where just one person was named? Right? Me too. Are you suffering from a, a physical ailment, an emotional distress, anxiety, depression, from a spiritual affliction, a sin struggle that you can't seem to shake, anger, jealousy, pride, lust, insecurity, doubt, fear, guilt, shame? Me too. I've been there. Maybe I'm there now. Right? Look around. We've all been there. Let's be honest. You're not alone. Does that make suffering easy? No. Does it make it easier? You bet. It does. Because there's power in community. Jesus promises us that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. So we gather around one another. Do you know how lions hunt? Let's keep the metaphor going. Lions hunt by separating the weak from the pack. Right? Satan hates what we're doing in here right now. He hates Sunday mornings when we gather together to worship corporately. He hates Tuesday nights when people come over to our house for life group. He hates especially when what we did earlier with intercessory prayer, surrounding the most vulnerable with the pack. He hates that. Friends, we need to know how special what we have here at West Hills is. You guys don't always get to see it. You don't get to hear all the stories that we do as pastors, all the ways that our church has stepped up in just the, the last week or two um, for Allie, for Emily, Katie, Sally, Jenny, I mean, all, all the people we just prayed for. So many needs, but you step up with your love and your support, your prayers and your presence, and we get to see that as pastors, and it's a beautiful thing. You just need to know that our pack is strong here at West Hills. It doesn't mean that individually we don't have moments and seasons of weakness and hardship. We all go through those, but we lean into one another. We rely on one another in that. And together, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Amen? And so if you came here this morning feeling separated from the pack, feeling alone, please don't leave that way. Come see me after the service, one of our elders. We will make sure you don't leave that way. Lastly, number five, we counter Satan by resting in God. We rest in the promise of verse 10 that after we've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We counter Satan by trusting in God's unfailing promises to us to prosper us and not harm us to give us a hope and a future, to work all things together for our good. These are promises that God gives us that we can rest in, church. And they lead us straight into our fourth gift, which is confidence, certainty, hope, assurance. That even when I struggle to see where God is in this broken situation, Peter says, hold on, don't lose faith. God has not forgotten you. It feels like Satan has taken over, but God... To God belongs the dominion forever and ever. The dominion, the reign, the rule, the kingdom. We serve an all-powerful, sovereign, providential king. He oversees everything, and our king does not step off his throne. He just sees a bigger picture sometimes. He sees a bigger plan sometimes, a plan for more than just our, our temporary happiness, a plan for our holiness he sees a picture that stretches beyond the here and now, this, this snapshot that we get right now that stretches into eternity. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace 
who's called you into eternal glory. You say, Peter, this doesn't feel like a little while. I've been suffering at this same dead-end job for 10 years. I've been suffering in this, with this resentment towards my spouse in this, in this miserable marriage for 20 years now. I've been suffering with this illness, chronic illness for 30 years, 40, 50 years, however long. It seems really long. I get it. I don't think Peter's just being insensitive here. He's just saying, take that and stack it up against eternity, eternal glory. It's a little while. We suffer a little while. And here's the thing. God doesn't, he doesn't even always wait until eternity to restore us, does he? I mean, I bet if we, again, I've talked about this before, if we were to pass the microphone around this this morning, we could all share stories and all think and remember times where we went through a difficult season, a difficult test of our faith, but God has already brought us through that to the other side, and we can already look back and see how he's begun to use it for our good and his glory. Can you think of those times? I I pray that we can all think of those times. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember those times and cling to those times when life becomes a struggle, the times when he's been faithful before and trust that he will do it again. And that he won't just restore us either. What does Peter say here? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. I don't know what that means for you and whatever suffering you're going through right now, but I know what it meant for Job, who we've already mentioned. We hear the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in his beginning. He had a lot of animals, a lot of family, lived a long time, and Job died an old man and full of days. And I know I can just tell you personally what it's meant for me without going into depth. The best things in my life right now, every single one of them, my wife, my daughter, my family, my job, my faith, it's all, it's all been only after a season of what seemed like a long, difficult time of trial, hardship. And so hold on, Christian. Hold on. Hope comes in the morning. He, he is still at work. Wait on the Lord. He's still sovereign. Nothing that you are going through right now caught God by surprise. And nothing you are going through right now is beyond his ability to take it and redeem it and use it for good. Amen? And when we realize that, it leads us to gift number five, celebration there in verse 11. Celebration, the confidence that we have that despite any suffering Satan can throw at us, knowing that our God is infinitely bigger and better, that compels us to celebrate him. Like we did together this morning when we sang. When we realize that God can take what Satan meant for evil and turn it around for good, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art when we realize that he can take even the worst darkness the world has ever known on the cross and redeem it and transform it, use it for his own good purposes, for our salvation, then we sing, this is amazing grace. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. When we realize that we have a reason to sing on through the night, that our hope remains eternal because Jesus is alive, then we sing, praise the king. He is risen. Praise the King. Church, we have a reason to sing these songs of hope and celebration because he is making all things new, and that includes you and your suffering and your struggle right now. Peter gives us gift number six, confirmation. 
confirmation that what he writes here for us and that we, what we now consider sacred scripture are not just his words, but is the true grace of God. Peter confirms the integrity of his letter and its content, the gospel, that it's undisputed, it's authoritative, and it's trustworthy. He does this especially in the second letter, in his second letter, where he boldly proclaims, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. There's that word. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone else's own interpretation. For no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, this isn't hearsay. I was there. I saw him with my own two eyes, dead on the cross, and then I saw him three days later. I felt the the nail-pierced hands. I saw him in the upper room. Eyewitness testimony. So did Matthew, John, James. No one writing scripture. What Peter already here in the first century considers scripture. He calls it scripture. No one does so on their own. Peter says, "We we write carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, this right here is the living, abiding word of God. Chapter one, verse 23. It's the word of God. Liberal commentaries, they don't know what to do with Peter's reference to Silvanus here in verse 12. They don't accept that Peter wrote this letter. It was some later fake Peter, and so yet they can't make sense of why this author then would reference Silvanus, a.k.a. Silas. We know him from First and Second Thessalonians, from Second Corinthians, from Acts. He was Paul's right-hand man in church planning. He's well-known throughout the church world, all these churches that Peter references, well-known. And so these scholars can't explain how First Peter could have wound up being so widely considered a scripture in the early church if it was supposedly written by this later fake Peter and therefore couldn't have been hand-delivered by Silvanus. They can't explain that. And see, history matters. History matters for us, friends. It matters that we have 22 historical ancient documents attesting to Jesus' crucifixion, 11 of which aren't even Christian writings. That matters. It matters that we don't base our faith around some abstract theological principles but on a historical person and a historical event that changed all of history. That matters. And the historicity of Peter's letter here, his gospel message, is confirmation of the hope that is ours in Christ. Gift number seven is community. Community. We've already talked about this some, but Peter mentions not only Silvanus here, but Mark, who was Peter's scribe and his spiritual son, Peter discipled him, and Mark would later use Peter's eyewitness testimony to record his own gospel narrative. And then Peter mentions this sort of enigmatic she who is at Babylon, who most scholars think agree to the church, uh, agree refers to the church in Rome. Who, whoever she is, the important thing for us here with all these references is Peter doesn't merely leave us with an admonition to live out Christian community. He offers us an example himself of one who does so. He exemplifies, he models for us the kind of fellowship and unity to which Jesus calls his church. We need one another. We need one another, friends. We need one another. We're we're created by a relational God for relationships. And we could joke about verse 14 here where he talks about greeting one another with a kiss of love. 
I tried to get Scott to use that for our passing of the peace this morning and have y'all greet each other with a kiss, but um, he thought we might scare some visitors away, probably scare some, some regulars away. Um, but all, all jokes aside about that, uh, Dan Doriani says this in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, the kiss of greeting was common and demonstrated friendship, kinship, and affection in the first century. It is still known in many cultures today, but where the practice is alien, we find other ways to demonstrate our affection. That could be a handshake or a hug. Physical affection is important, as the fivefold command to greet with a holy kiss shows. But the custom must be grounded in reality. We need genuine ties for the signs of affection to carry weight. It's awkward, not helpful to hug a stranger. We need relationships and must take time to form them. I was personally reminded of the awkwardness of hugging a stranger just this past weekend. I was attending a funeral and went up to give someone a hug and realized uh, after it was already too late that she was not who I thought she was. And um, you ever do that? And you're, you're already, you've committed and you're there and there's no coming back. And so you just hug it out. And I'm already embracing her and she introduces herself and tells me her name. And it's definitely not who, you know, she kind of tells me her name in my ear. So I, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I just said, I'm sorry. And uh, <laughs> finish the hug, walk away and laugh. Um, but, but all jokes aside, how, how, let's think, I mean, just spend a moment this, this morning thinking about how do you greet people? Whom do you greet how, right? Who gets a a handshake from you? Who gets a hug from you? That says something about the relationship, doesn't it? It's kind of like a a, a tangible litmus test for the intimacy and the comfort level and the trust of that relationship. And some of y'all are smiling and looking at me right now like this is getting awkward. You need to move on. Like... um, going to be overthinking things in the foyer after the service now. I'm just trying to make this really uncomfortable for everybody. And afterwards in the foyer, I want you, I want you just overanalyzing, like, do I hug her? We've been in life group together for three months, but I'm not really a hugger, but I don't want her to be offended now and not think that I care about her. You can always just go with the side hug, the most awkward of all for, for Christians. But here's the point, this, this kiss of love, right, it's a, it's a good relationship check for us, isn't it? It's kind of like an accountability check. If we're growing in our relationships, we'll hug people now who we used to shake hands with. We'll shake hands with people we used to just smile at across the room. And, you know, hopefully we'll make new friends every Sunday as, as new people come and join us. That's community. That's Christian community. And we need it. And lastly, gift number eight, Peter leaves us with the gift of comfort. Verse 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so we end where we began, actually. Peter opened his his book in chapter one with grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he signs off here in chapter five with the God of all grace and peace to all in Christ. And so my hope And my prayer for you is that 1 Peter has brought you as much comfort personally as it's brought me these past few weeks and months. Not the kind of comfort that the world seeks. Not not insulation from pain and suffering. Those are inevitable. And God doesn't promise us that. But he promises us something much better. He promises us that for those of us who are in Christ... 
that he'll be there with us in the midst of it, in the midst of our suffering and our pain, and that he cares, and that he can and he will take that suffering, he will redeem it, and he will use it for our good. Because he'll use it, ultimately, to make us more like Jesus. And that's what we need most anyways. And that gives us real comfort, real peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning. We thank you for Jesus, for the comfort that is ours in him, for the confidence, the confirmation of our hope, for the care you offer us, for community, for all these things that we've studied and seen in your word this morning. One, just any one of those gifts would be enough. It would be more than we deserve. You are such a good father who so richly blesses us beyond our ability to even recognize it, certainly to appreciate it, and certainly to deserve it. We don't deserve all these gifts you lavish upon us. So all we can do is humbly receive them. Open our hands, open our hearts to your love, your grace, and your mercy this morning. So Father, as we do that now and as we, as we take, gather around the, the Lord's table together and we, we receive a tangible reminder of your gift, your ultimate gift to us, of your Son, Jesus And our minds are drawn to the cross, to our sin. And yet they're also drawn to the empty tomb. The newness of life that is ours through your resurrection. We celebrate Good Friday and Easter this morning. As we remember that, would you increase in us our love for you as you increase in us our realization of your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Ushers, you can come forward.